All right. This morning, I want to start a little two-part series talking about idolatry. And I, I don't, as we get into this, we're going to paint with a, a broader brush. And the reason I want to do that is because I feel like if we try to bring it down and try to hit everybody's particular idol, we're not going to hit anything of any substance. So what I want to do is trust that the Holy Spirit's going to engage with us as we engage with the Word, um, as we look at idolatry. Now, this it's really going to be two parts. We'll, we'll finish up next week looking at some specifics uh, within the context of, they'll be valuable for us, but they'll also be within the context of uh, those presentations that I'm looking at doing in January. So um, this morning, what I want to do is, is sort of build a good biblical foundation for idolatry. It's a word that we throw around a lot. It's something that we, we might even talk about, uh, but what does it mean? And so let's take some time and define that. So idolatry is anything that would decrease or displace God. Anything that would make him less than good, less than righteous, less than holy, less than omniscient, less than omnipotent, Anything that would damage any of the attributes that the scripture has revealed to us would be idolatry. Anything that would displace God would remove him from his position of authority and jurisdiction and put him somewhere else is idolatry. One of the key things that we understand in idolatry is that our trust is shifted. Right? So here is God. He should be the appropriate and complete object of our trust and assurance. We can safely trust in him. He is the creator. He is able to deliver on every promise he's ever made and has done and will continue to do so. But when we fall to idolatry, what happens for us personally, one of the things that is required on that altar is a shift in our trust. Our faith focus is moved from God to something else. Turn with me, if you will, turn, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And I want to just look at a few verses here, and let's not take this farther than, than, it, than what Scripture tells us. But I want to look at this idea because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we see the fall of mankind. We see that initial rejection and rebellion against God. And we definitely see a shift in their trust. So let's read it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We'll, we'll remember the serpent has showed up. He's tempting them. He's uh, causing them to doubt and, and question God. And, he, and verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so it appealed as just something to eat. It looked good. We've all been there. You see an apple tree with a bright red, juicy apple. It looks good. You want to pick one. Similar thing happening here. It looks good for food. So that's one thing. It's not, the, it's not the core issue. And that's part of the reason to paint with a broad brush. Picking the apple, trusting in that apple, that pursuit of that particular lust isn't the core issue. And when we bring idolatry down to something very, very specific, that car, 
that thing is an idol. We're going to talk more about this in, in a moment. That's not the heart issue behind it. Okay, so it's good for food first. It's pleasant to the eyes. And here's the maybe the more key thing, a tree to be desired to make one wise. And she took of the fruit and shade thereof, and she did eat, and she gave it unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So both of them take it. Now, you remember that the temptation wasn't being thrown out there by the serpent is that did God really say? And so immediately he begins to shift or try to shift their focus, their trust in God. Their creator, who they have a, an intimate relationship with, who they walk with in the cool of the day, they see him face to face. And it begins to cast this doubt upon God's goodness, upon his trustworthiness. God is somehow withholding something from you that you would benefit from. He shifts their trust. Eating the fruit was the outward expression. That was, in other words, that was the bowing down. That was the outward action. But the real idolatry was far deeper, and it was rooted in their heart. Idolatry is a faith issue. And that's going to become a key point as we begin to, next week, look at some modern, quote-unquote, idols. Some things that we, as a church, have adopted or allowed in or succumbed to, they shift our focus from God. So idolatry, at a simple definition, anything that would decrease or displace God. <clears throat> so let's look at what, what God has said. Now, the, this is familiar territory for us, but let's talk about this. The Word of God presupposes the existence of God, and it presupposes the existence of God as a singular being. He's one God. Okay? In Genesis chapter 1, turn there with me. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God doesn't explain who He is, where He came from, doesn't anything. He just assumes here He was, He was always there. And we understand that as we get into Scripture, we look at this, we see that that is, in fact, the truth. That is, that is the case. And God reveals that more plainly to us in Exodus. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is pre-assumed, just suppose, it is a statement of fact that God exists. That is the first presupposition that we find in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me, Exodus chapter 3, we've... we've gone through thousands of, well, about a thousand years of history here, a um, couple thousand years of history, excuse me. And we pick up with Moses, who has now left Egypt. He tried to deliver the nation of Israel on his own and his own understanding, and he failed. Actually commits murder in the process, flees into the wilderness. Here he is as the shepherd for his father-in-law, and he sees this burning bush, but it's not consumed. So he goes over to see what's going on. And when he gets there, God tells him, listen, take off your shoes because this is holy ground. And he has this interaction, this conversation with God. And he's been prepared now for the, this period of time to be the deliverer. It's now time. And he's going to go with God's permission. He's going to go in God's timing. 
and he's going to go with God's purpose. But Moses is not 100% accepting of the task that's been put before him. He has some concerns about his speech. He has some concerns about whether or not the people will believe him. And so God gives him some, some signs and wonders to help confirm that. And one of the things that Moses says is, what is your name? Who will I tell this people sent me? And God tells us in Genesis, excuse me, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Thus shalt, tell the child, shalt, shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Now, I am, that's where we get Jehovah or Yahweh. And we, we don't know because, right, they remove the, those, those Jews that were so zealous for the name of God and to not blaspheme it, remove the vowel. So we, we don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but ultimately that doesn't matter. But I am that I am. I'm uncreated. I am self-existent. I always have been and I always will be. All of that is summed up in that short statement, I am that I am. That's what the name means. That's the name that God revealed of himself that he gave Moses. And that's the name that we understand him by to whatever degree we can. So we have God that is a creator of all things. And he spoke everything to existence. Not from things that existed, but from nothing. He's always existed, and therefore he's uncreated. He's outside of the jurisdiction and the rules that he has created within what we know as his creation. And in Hebrews chapter 13, turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 8 is where we're going to read. Hebrews 13, 8. I'm going to make a little bit of a leap here. We've been talking about God, and we're now we're going to focus on Jesus, a single person in the Godhead, but it applies nonetheless. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. In other words, this self-existent God that has always been and, has all, and always will be is the same in the past as he will be in the future. He's the same today as he was in the very beginning. And that's an important thing for us to notice and to, to understand because God is unchanging. If God is unchanging, then he can't be displaced. There isn't something that would pull him down. He is all-powerful all the time. He doesn't have a moment of weakness where he might somehow succumb to some temptation or sin or somehow leave behind a part of his character or nature and therefore be less than God. He's never going to change. All of his attributes have always been intact from before time began. His mercy, his justice, his love, his holiness, his righteousness, all those things that we know about God have always been in place. And it's always been that way, and he will always be that way. It isn't a different God with different rules and standards in the Old Testament and a different God or somehow changed rules and standards in the New Testament. It's the same God. And when we understand the Bible from Genesis 1-1 saying that God has always existed, we start with that presupposition, and now we look for that consistent picture of who God is throughout 
the Bible from Genesis all the way to the conclusion of Revelation, we will understand Scripture better and in a more consistent and appropriate light. Don't make a mistake. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Always has been and always will be. Spoke everything into existence. Oh, I, sorry. There you go. <laughs> and then I click over here. It's, I just got everything set up all wrong today. So, God has always existed. The Bible makes it very clear that he is the only God. There aren't any others. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we find what's called the, the Shema. This is a statement of fact. It's one of the presuppositions, if you will, of this catechism, all the things that God has told the nation of Israel, and he's going on to instruct them, teach these things to your kids, and this is when you do it. And he makes it very plain and very clear that one of the first things that we should teach is this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Not one among many, not one among a few, but one and singular. There is no other sovereign, no other creator, no other jurisdiction that could even come close or wouldn't derive it's authority from him. He is God alone. And he's not God alone in the sense that he's just the God of this region of the cosmos or this. You know, he is God, period. There is no other God in existence anywhere, in any way, shape, or form. No parallel universe. No, none of that. Just one God, and this is it. He's revealed himself to us in the Bible. He's the only God. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. Verses 5 and 6. Now you'll remember, and I'll just, I'll just give you a little bit of context. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 1, God is addressing the idolatry of Israel. He's condemning their false worship. They're going through the motions, but their heart is removed. He has been displaced, and their trust is found somewhere else. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 and 6, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Just pause there for a moment. Even if we don't know God, even if we don't accept the fact that he exists, he just told us that doesn't change the fact that I exist and that I'm the only God. There is no out. There is no ignorance. When we get to Romans chapter 1 and 2, God has made it plainly obvious through his creation that, and left man without excuse. He's revealed himself sufficiently. And I know that because he told us that. And if people choose to reject that fact, that very simple truth that he exists, and it doesn't change the fact that he is. And it doesn't change the fact that he is God. Verse 6, that they may know from the rising of the sun and, and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. 
What do we derive from that? There's only one God. Simple. In fact, throughout the scripture, I think in the, in the Old Testament alone, there's something like 87 direct, very clear, I am the only God. I could be wrong about that statistic. It could be 87 in the entire Bible. But listen, that's 87 times that God declares that he is the only God. He doesn't, he, he's not somehow beating around the bush. He's made it very plain. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you'll turn there with me for a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Here is an interesting passage. Paul is talking about eating meat and those things sacrificed to idols. So within the context of idolatry, within the context of uh, am I worshiping these idols or not by partaking of that, we have this little, and I'll just tell you that, listen, Paul's opinion was, listen, you, you, you probably not. But if you think that if that's a stumbling block for you, then don't. Okay, that's the long and short of it. But this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 8, 4, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is none other God but one. So we have two things happening here. Number one, that an idol represents nothing. It represents something that I've made up or that I've bought into that is not God, that it is not a God and can never be a God. When we talk about idolatry in the, in, in the Bible, for the most part, the expression, the outward expression of that is going to be things like child sacrifice. We read about that in the Old Testament. Manasseh was was one of the kings of Israel, and he offered child sacrifice to Molech, right? We have them, you'll read in the Old Testament about the groves and all of those things. They'd go out and mutilate trees as shrines and idols, and they would worship these things. You remember that when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and they put it in the temple of Dagon, that, that kind of merman, and it fell over, and so they finally sent it back because their God had broken into pieces. You remember that when Isaac took Leah and Rebekah, let's see, am I getting the right patriarch here? And, and, and Rebekah takes the idols of her father and hides them. Yeah. Right. They're just these little figures. They represent something that somebody says this has value or, or is true or something, but it, but it is incorrect. Rachel? Rachel? Sonar, Rachel. You know, see, that's why I asked, because I knew something was amiss. I, Missy was over here, oh, I don't know, and I'm getting nods in other places, so we just move on, but, you know. Good job, guys. But all of this to say, look, all, all of this was just things. And that's what I, Paul is saying here. All of these things, all of these statues, all of these figurines, all of these tree mutilations, all of these things that we might do that that we're offering sacrifices to are not gods. They don't exist. There is only one God, the God that created everything, that spoke everything to existence, has always been and always will be. He is the living and the true God. Everything else is false. Everything else is made up. Everything else is a deception that would be thrown out there by the enemy or, or allowed by ourselves so that we might soothe our conscience. 
we are surrounded by false gods. We are surrounded by those that worship false gods. But God says, I am only one. There's only one of me. There aren't not one among many, just one God, unchanging creator of the universe. God commands for you and I, his, his followers, he commands wholehearted and singular worship. Okay, so God has said, I am the only God. God has said that there is no other God beside me. He said all these idols, all these things that are, that are out there, they're false. There's nothing there. There's no, no thing to worship. He is our creator. He alone is sovereign over his creation. As a result of that, he is the only object, the only thing, the only person worthy of worship, worthy of praise. And God commands wholehearted, not not going through the motions, not faked, and singular, worshiping him alone. In Exodus chapter 20, turn there with me. Exodus chapter 20, this is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And he brings them down uh, to the nation of Israel. You'll remember all of that. Exodus chapter 20 is where we find them. The first two commandments that God gives are related to this directly. First two commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is that singular worship. You will not worship anything except me. When God tells the nation of Israel, his people, and we are Christians, we're his people. We're to be singular in our worship. Nothing should displace or decrease in our lives or in our hearts and minds, who he is and what he is. Singular worship. Not only that, he continues on, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Right? We're not to make any idols. We're not to make any statues or figurines or anything like that. We're not to mutilate trees and, and use that as an object of worship. We'd worship him alone, and we don't do anything. We don't allow anything in, any image of anything that would replace him. And while there may be some specific context in this, uh, to that day and age, when we talk about idols today, it's the same thing. The same heart is there, that I would allow something in that would displace God in my life. That that thing would be allowed to have jurisdiction and authority, that it would take the place of God, even if it's only in one area of my life, We've broken this command. This is what God has commanded. 
There are those who will say, well, that's just the Old Testament. This is just for those in the nation of Israel. People, this is people. Sorry, that might have been a little rude. I apologize. <laughs> right? This is God's people. They're a picture. They're an illustration of the people of God who will be brought in, you and I. The commands didn't change. They didn't somehow become negated. Our righteousness is not found in them. Our righteousness is found in Jesus alone. But it's still right and it's still wrong, and God has declared it to be so, and that didn't change. We're to worship him alone, and we're to worship and not have any idols. Not only that, but we find this in the New Testament as well. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, let's begin in verse 20, uh, 24. <clears throat> now, Paul is here preaching um, in Ephesus. Let's see. Pretty sure it's in Ephesus. And uh, what we find is that there in Ephesus, there's this temple unto Diana, who's, who's this false goddess, right? And there's all kinds of pagan worship, hedonism, and all the things that are going on over there. But there are people that are making a fortune, making their living on selling idols, these little shrines and those things, right? And we pick that story up here. This is what's going on. Acts chapter 19, verse 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, who is a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. In other words, this is how they made their living. Where we, we make these silver statues, we make these little idols, these little shrines. You can have part of the temple of Diana at your home. Right? That's kind of the marketing. Here it is. And so what's happening is, Paul, people are getting saved, and they're forsaking idol worship. They're forsaking these false gods. So now there's a smaller market for their wares, for the things that they would make, for their idols. All the craftsmen get together, verse 25, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Right? If people stop worshiping Diana, if we, have a, if we don't have a market for our little silver statues, we're in trouble. Moreover, verse 26, you see in here that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So not only is Paul dealing with it, not only are people's hearts being turned away from this as they come to faith in Jesus Christ, but here in Ephesus, but all throughout Asia, everywhere that Paul is ministering, and they've heard of it, it's, such, it's to the extent that this is news that has traveled to them. And they're worried about it. But what is Paul telling people? He's, listen, those things, there is no God there, just like we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That is a false idol. There is no spirit. There is nothing behind that for which you should be worshiping anything. There is one God, and that one God left everything, became God in the flesh, John chapter 1, verses 1, all the way through verse 14, for the purpose of dying, to be that substitutionary death for your sinfulness, 
No longer do you have to have these shrines and these idols and worship them and all the, I mean, can you imagine the deliverance? You know, at this point, that you have the certainty of salvation. And it isn't based on the sacrifices you've brought or the money that you've laid at the feet of Diana or whatever other things that are happening over there. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. This God who said, this is the standard of righteousness. You can never meet it, but I'll take away your sin and I will give you my righteousness. Verse 27. So that not only this our craft is in danger, but to, to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. Listen, guys, we have to put a stop to this. And that's exactly what happens. There is a riot about this. There's a riot about this. You can read about this, not in just the Bible. You can read about this in secular history. This was a big deal. And it results from the idea and the understanding that principally God demands of his people, you and I, believers, Christians, singular and wholehearted worship. Not divided amongst him and some other gods and these other things. Not divided amongst these idols and these things that we would hold in our homes. But wholehearted. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, the world has a problem with that, and it's part of the world, part of the reason that the world would espouse these other gods, because here is a singular way. Here is one way to God the Father. Here is one way to salvation, to redemption. Here is one way to deal with the sin that I know that I have. And I don't like that. I don't like that fact. I don't, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to, I, I've been doing all these good things, and all you're telling me is that all those good things that I've done don't add up to anything. Absolutely, that's what we're telling you. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation. But the world doesn't like that. The world pushes back against that. The world doesn't like that because it shines the light into the darkness. It draws a line in the sand, and now they have to deal with it. That's what happened here. They were looking at the bottom line. They were looking at how this is going to affect our pocketbooks and all those things. But there's also a concern with their goddess, right? We, we want to make sure that our goddess is upheld. And it doesn't matter. You and I may not, and the world around us today may not be worshiping the goddess Diana, though they might be. But there's all kinds of other things that have crept in, all kinds of other things that we have allowed that would pull us from our singular, wholehearted worship of God. And I'll just submit to you by word of caution that some of those things might be good and legitimate. They might be good things. But when they replace our first love, when they put God out of his place, that becomes an idol. Whether it's family, whether it's... Uh, going to church, whatever it may be. It might be a good thing. But if it displaces God, it's a bad thing. It's idolatry. We have to understand that. <clears throat> Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, because we need to understand that idolatry really is a problem. 
that it still exists, that, that even though it may have modern trappings, it's still there. And not only that, it's something that we as believers that the church has to deal with. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now I want you to consider who this was written to. This is Paul writing to believers. He's writing to those people who are within the church, to you and me. And he's saying, listen, we have to be careful because there is idolatry within the church. That's one of those things that we have to mortify, that we have to put off. Those uh, covetousness, that thing that I have to have that's displacing my affection, my trust, or reducing who God is. That God is somehow unfaithful or unjust because he would withhold such a good thing from me. And that's wrong. That is wrong thinking. Covetous is the desire to hold on to or to get what is outside of our God-given jurisdiction. If you want a simple definition, it's about as simple as I can come up with, right? I desire and I want something so badly, but it's not something that God has for me, so he doesn't give it. But I'm going to pursue it anyway. I, at that point, have decided that I know better than God. He is withholding something from me, just like Eve would say, he's withholding something that is good for us. It makes us wise. This is something that we should be engaged in. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a moment. I want to give you an example of this in general terms. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You're going to have to just write this one down. That's a bonus. It's not in your notes up here but I trust you guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 5 through 8. Excuse me, 15 through 18. Just put a 1 and a, in front of each of those numbers, you'll be fine. Nobody will even know. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, it is therefore not, is it therefore not of the body. Right? What are we talking about? We're talking about looking and desiring, coveting some other position within the body. Some other jurisdiction. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that God has fitly joined the body together. In other words, just as you stack bricks or you might take stones and stack them for a wall or something, and you take the time to fit them together so that it's the most stable or the most aesthetic or both, God has done that exact thing with the body of Christ. He's put you here and he's made you whatever portion of the body you are. Just like that person or this person or that person, and somebody may say, well, gee, I'm just a foot. I want to be that thing over there. It's outside of that jurisdiction. It becomes covetous. It becomes idolatry. He goes on. And if the year shall say, because I am not the eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? We might ascribe some special spiritualness or, or, or man, those people must really be loved by God because he would put them in that position. No, God put them in that position because... He gets the glory. And if the year, verse 16, shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? Right? It takes all kinds. When you, 
when you go to a missions conference or something like that, or, and I know Jeff White's done this and, and it was a really good presentation, but he talked about it. Here is the role. We have the missionary who's getting sent out, but here is the role and the support of the rest of the body of Christ, how the foot supports the eye and how the hand supports the eye. We look at the missionaries or the, the pastors or the evangelists, or those people with public ministries, whatever it may be. And we say, boy, if they must be spiritual. That Look at that. And there tends to be within the church in broad terms, sort of an idolization of those ministries, of those people, of those offices and those things. Listen, those missionaries, you talk to them, they're regular people just like you and me. They have struggles just like we do. They have to trust the Lord just like we do. And when you talk to them and you hear what they have to say and begin to realize you have a strategic role in keeping them in the mission field, whether it's through financial support, whether it's through prayers, whether all the things that have to come together to keep them there so that they can do the one thing that God called them to do, you realize that without the rest of the body, there wouldn't be any missionaries. But if we all coveted that office, how are we going to get there and how are we going to keep them there? Idolatry is a problem even within the church. Now, I'm not saying that God can't give you some desire that, you, that is outside of what you're currently doing. But what I'm saying is that when we take some desire and we allow that to become something that displaces God, or reduces who he is, it's idolatry. And it happens even in the church. So if we sum it up very quickly here, God has always existed and he is the creator. He is the only God and he's living, which is different from every idol that is dead, that is false, that is just material laying on the ground. Until somebody picked it up and whittled into whatever shape they chose to make it into. Oh, sorry, these are, I thought it was all at the same time. God commands our singular and wholehearted worship. There is no room for you and I as believers to have a divided heart. James talks about that. There's no room for you and I as believers to worship other things. We have to understand idolatry, idolatry is a problem even for believers. It's something that we are going to have to deal with, whether it's personally or whether it's part of the body of Christ. But wait, there's more. I, right, we're talking about modern idols. I want you to understand that there is really nothing new under the sun. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You go to, you go to Psalms and then Proverbs and... We'll be in the right vicinity. We've all heard this verse. We've all been there and we've all heard the statement there's nothing new under the sun. This is where it comes from. But I want to look at it in, in all that it says. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. The thing that has been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Right, here's the thing, whether it's idolatry from the past and it manifests itself as worshiping in, in child sacrifice or tree mutilation or whatever it is, it's the same sinful indulgence. 
It's not new. And the definition of idolatry hasn't changed. It's always been the same. It's the same heart behind it. Maybe different outward expression, maybe different things on the outside that we might do, because whenever we worship, whenever something else, there is a requisite sacrifice that has to be made. It's just the nature of worship. So next week, as we begin to look at some of these modern idols and some of the, sort of those things that we encounter that we may not even realize that we encounter within the church, because really this is something that the church needs to focus on. We need to also identify what's being offered. What, what is the sacrifice being made here? What are we giving up for this one thing that we want to hold on to? It's a different kind of outward expression. Kind of, right? First Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. And just what we read here in Ecclesiastes, it's always been the same. Those things that have been done, the worship, the false, false worship, the idolatry, all of those things that have always been, they're always have been, and they will always be. And I'm convinced more and more I'm convinced that more and more, because the word of God says, listen, they're going to heap to themselves, even as the, day, as the days progress, the closer we get to the return of Jesus, the more and more they'll heap to themselves teachers who will just tell them what they want to hear, that'll scratch, tickle their ears, tell them those pleasant things. They won't say things like, listen, church, we have to deal with idolatry. This is something that we need to identify. These are things we, we need to allow the spirit to convict us in whatever areas we may be holding on to. Because inevitably, probably all of us, I know that I probably, I know that I do, not always bad things, but sometimes those good things that have displaced God or that somehow decreased who he is in my heart and mind. And it's a common temptation. But God says, listen, he goes on and he says, I have give you the grace so you might stand underneath it, that we might escape, that we might take that way of escape. So here's, here's the promise that God gives us when it comes to idolatry. When he reveals it to us, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of it, he's given us the grace that we might be delivered from it. He's faithful and just if we confess our sins to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can take that to the bank all day, every day, 24-7. That's the same as all day, every day, right? This is a faith issue. Who do I trust? What do I trust? It's the same core problem that's always existed. It might be dressed differently, might have different curtains. Still the same. So we as believers have to choose who we're going to serve. The church at large has allowed itself to be lulled into faith, lulled into faith in other things. I think that we were an easy target in some respects. And I think that'll become more clear as we look at some of these next week. The idols, uh, these idols would relegate God to the position of some magic man in the sky, which is a quote. That's what the atheists call God. Some magic man in the sky. That's what they think about us. At best, I mean, that's the best that he's just some wizard out there that can do things on our behalf. 
He's the genie in the bottle. And when we go through the right prescription, we can rub the, the, the lamp and we'll get our three wishes. At worst, they replace them or remove them altogether. James chapter four, verse four, turn there with me for just a moment. James chapter four, verse four. These are kind of stinging words for us, especially as we come to the conclusion of the message about idolatry and strong statements about, yeah, we probably all have idolatry. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses. Because <laughs> from God's perspective, that's exactly what it is. Whenever he's talking about adultery within Israel, he's talking about them leaving him and going and worshiping something else, falling into idolatry. And because this is a problem within our own hearts, and minds, and within the church, this is also addressed to you and I. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? If we're going to hold on to those idols, we're going to become, we're going to be the enemies of God. We're choosing a side. Whoso ever therefore will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's harsh, and it's hard, but it's the truth. Now, I wouldn't suggest that anyone here is probably wholeheartedly, listen, I'm full-blown idolatry. And then the reason I say that is because you're here. You're listening to something like this that confronts you, and you're willing to stay in your seat and be confronted by it. That the Word of God can interact with you. But there might be some area in your life that, I've had, that you've held on to. That you, say, you know, this is something that I'm going to indulge. I'm going to allow this. In this area of my life, God has been displaced by this item. We may have pockets of adultery within us. Pockets of idolatry that we've allowed. In Romans chapter 6, <clears throat> turn there with me. Romans chapter 6. As we go through this entire discussion about being delivered from sin, about God being uh, the one that does the delivering, Romans chapter 6, and it says that we've been no longer slaves to those things that would, be, that would have sway over us. And in other words, those things that we have chosen to hold on to are just that, they're choices that we've made. That God wanted to deliver me from that thing. He wanted to bring about... Uh, victory in those particular areas, but I have chosen to hold on to it. I've chosen to allow God to be displaced in those pockets of my life. Romans 6.22, but now being made free from sin, and I just want to pause there for a moment, that is the fact. You and I, believers, we are free from sin. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be a struggle. We're not perfect, right? We have this exchange of righteousness, in God's eyes, we have been declared righteous. We are holy. We are, when he sees us, he doesn't see our sinfulness. And not only that, in Jesus Christ, we've been delivered from the power of sin and death. The, the, the law that, that reigns in our life is the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Romans 8.2. Okay? That's, that's the truth for you and I. And there will be a battle with our old nature. Be, there will be this continual struggle. And in fact, the next chapter in Romans talks about this. Paul talks about it. Okay. 
But there's a statement of fact here. We are now made free from sin. We choose to engage in it. And we always will. I don't believe that you can be sinfully, sinlessly perfect. I don't think that that applies to anyone ever in this life. But what it does mean is that we can be sensitive and submitted to the conviction that God would give us. That when he brings things to our attention, we would yield it to him. We would bring it into submission. I talked about last week, an area of my life where, listen, I have to change my thinking because if God says that it's right and good, no matter how unsavory I may think it to be, it doesn't change the fact that it is right and good. And I need to change. It's like your kids, you know, you know that Brussels sprouts are delicious. You put some butter on them, a little salt. Oh, they're scrumptious. And you have to convince your kids. You're like, you just got to try it once, you know, just, oh, I know. Yeah. Five years later, try it again. And it's going to be better this time. And in some respects, that's the way that we interact with sin. We're free from it. God's putting all the good stuff in front of us and we're going to choose to eat those other things. Now listen, it's maybe not Brussels sprouts. It could be anything. Maybe it's cinnamon bears. Maybe it's Skittles. Maybe, maybe it's something that we would like, but we haven't tried it. And in, in, in that regard, right, we are now free from sin and we become the servants of God. There's this transition. No longer are we slaves to the sin that has held us, but we are servants of God. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. God in his faithfulness is going to continue to put those things in front of us that are going to convict us, that are going to correct us, that are going to shine the light into the every area, every dark corner of our hearts. And we should rejoice at that fact. And we need to be submitted and quick to respond. We are his servants. Don't choose to hold on to anything. Galatians chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me for a moment. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right here it is. Our old nature is put to death. And we read about that through the, throughout the Romans chapter 6. It's put to death. It is done. It is dead. I am crucified with Christ, yet we're still alive. And Paul goes on and he gives this illustration, this picture. He says, but listen, the life that I now live, what we're doing today, what you and I are living now is for him. It's for him. And we need to be consistent in that picture. We need to be those who would be subject to the authority of Christ in our life. That we wouldn't worship anything else, that we wouldn't hold on to any idols, that we would displace all that, that we would put it all out, just as those good kings that came into the nation of Israel over and over again would purge all the idols, and they'd cut down the groves, and they would clean everything up, and they would forbid idol worship, and the people's hearts would turn back to the Lord. 
And then you have another king that would come in and it would displace all that. And you would begin to fall into pagan worship and idolatry. And the people would follow right behind them. And we had this cycle over and over and over. Listen, you and I have been delivered. We've had a good king that has come in and has replaced everything. He's pulled the idols down. He's cut down the groves. He's removed the idolatry. That needs to be who we follow. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, and this is in the context of idolatry. Joshua is telling the nation of Israel as they come into the promised land, he says, listen, you can worship these pagan gods. And that's effectively what he says. You can worship these pagan gods, the people, the gods of the people who were here. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve the one living God. And that's the choice that's put before you and I when we're confronted with a message like this. Listen, whatever idolatry is there in that particular area of your life, whatever thing you may be holding on, you can serve it if you want to. But as for me and my house, and by God's grace, I pray that we would do that with every facet, with every dark corner, with every little crevice. I was going to sit down on the couch yesterday morning. Our dog sleeps on the couch. She sneaks out in the middle of the night. She can retract her claws so she can walk silently on the hardwood floors. And she sleeps on the couch, amongst other places. And so I always do a cursory check, you know, just a little hand. I can feel, you could feel the hair because you sit down and it now goes to work with you. It goes, it goes everywhere, which is not necessarily a problem per se, but I'd rather not. And so I, I feel the hair, and, and I see it. So I get the little roller, the little lint roller, and I'm rolling it up. And I'm like, you know what? There's probably hair everywhere. So I start pulling the cushions out. And then, lo and behold, between every cushion, right, all the stuff that always falls between everybody's couches the same way. Nobody should be embarrassed by this. If we pull our couch out or a refrigerator, don't ever pull your refrigerator out. Right? It's, there's full of stuff. But everywhere, and this is illustrative of our hearts. Right here is Jesus. He's knocking on the door of our heart. We've opened it up. He's come in. We are saved. We are born again Christians. But there are areas in our life where there is hair. There's unsightly things. There are things that we're holding on to that I don't want to clean up or whatever it may be. And we need to pull the refrigerator out and clean that. We need to pull the couch cushions off and run the vacuum in there and get all that popcorn and you know everybody's got even if you don't eat popcorn you got popcorn in your couch cushions i don't know but but it's symbolic of our heart there's areas that we've held on to and god in his goodness is going to reveal those to us i'm convinced of that he promises us that the predetermined destiny for you and i as believers in romans chapter 8 is to be conformed into the image of his son Listen, Jesus didn't have any unsightly areas. He didn't have dog hair between the couch cushions. He didn't have lint under the refrigerator. It was perfect. It was spotless. We're going to be conformed into his image. God in his faithfulness will bring those things to light. Our responsibility in that is to respond to it as Christ would. To let him clean it up. We are 
confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Next week, we're going to talk about some modern idols specifically. But this is, this is sort of a biblical foundation. This is where we're at. This is the reality that we interpret that, that we understand it through, because this is what the Word of God says about it. And you and I have a choice every day, every moment, to say, listen, I'm going to choose to serve the Lord. And I'm right there with you. I understand the struggle. Because while I might stand up here on a Sunday morning, I got the same two feet. I got the same pants that go on one leg at a time. Just a regular guy with regular sin struggles, like everyone else here. We have to understand that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to open your word, to be confronted by it. Lord, hopefully to be encouraged and challenged by it. I praise you for your spirit that leads us in truth. I praise you by your, for your spirit that, uh, as Jesus said, would reprove us of truth and righteousness and of justice. Those things, Lord, that you shine into our hearts and lives, those unsightly areas. And I pray for your grace, Lord, that we might be receptive and respond uh, as Christ would to correction in those areas. Lord, may we be like the nation of Israel that has a good king ruling and we are following and we are serving you for your glory. And Lord, when we begin to stray, may, may not only your spirit, but the Lord, our little fellowship, may the body be part of that corrective force, that accountability. We praise you and we thank you for it, Lord. We rejoice at your goodness and faithfulness and your promise to conform us, to make us like Jesus. Lord, as we sing, as we praise this morning, as we worship you for who you are and for all that you've done, Lord, I pray that you would receive it as the offering of our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.